I'm Megan Murphy, host of The Same Drugs. I'm here to have conversations. Real, honest, authentic conversations. The kind we aren't supposed to have anymore. I interview anyone I find interesting, from left to right to everywhere in between. I work independently in order to have the freedom to say what I believe and speak to whoever I want. Staying independent has allowed me to speak freely and to tell the truth, no matter how unpopular, for many years now. And I wouldn't trade that for anything. We have seen over the last few years how deeply compromised big media is and how willing mainstream journalists are to twist facts and hide the truth to sell a narrative dictated by those in power. I won't ever trade my integrity or my free speech for a paycheck. But that means I need your help. I rely on donors and patrons, so individuals, to support my work so that I can continue to do what I do. If you appreciate the kinds of conversations we're having at The Same Drugs, please consider becoming a subscriber on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Megan Murphy, where patrons get early access to episodes as well as the opportunity to participate in weekly Patreon-only live streams and AMAs. You can also support this podcast directly on Spotify by clicking the support button on the Same Drugs podcast page. And don't forget to also click the follow button so you don't miss new episodes. You can also subscribe to The Same Drugs on Substack, which I really appreciate. Paying subscribers sustain me like nothing else. That's at www.meganmurphy.ca. Thank you so much in whatever way you do for supporting conversations outside the algorithm. Today on the show, I'm speaking with Gabrielle Bauer, author of Blind Sight is 2020, Reflections on COVID Policies from Dissident Scientists, Philosophers, Artists, and More. Hello, Gabrielle. Thank you so much for joining me on The Same Drugs. Oh, my pleasure. I've known about you for a while, and it's an honor to be on your show. Oh, you have? Okay. Well, that's nice. I'm just learning about you. Um, I really um, appreciate the book that you just published. Um, I am curious to know before we get into that a little bit about your background. I mean, and, and what sort of, what led you to write a book about COVID dissidents? Uh, my background, I've been working as a freelance writer for 29 years. I do a lot of medical writing, also journalism for the general public. Um, I've had two books published uh, before um, by mainstream publisher. And so what led me to write this book, it was very organic. You know, when the whole, when COVID hit and the lockdowns and everything, I had a, an instinctive and very strong recoil to the whole thing from day one. Hmm. You know, it wasn't like I was on board for two weeks or two months and then changed my mind. It was, it was literally from day one. And, um, and everyone around me was on board. And I thought I was taking crazy pills. You know, why were people so 
gung-ho about this and so inflexible of anyone who expressed a different view. Why was there all this, all this shaming and snitching? And it just seemed completely crazy to me. And, um, you know, I was, I despaired. I despaired at what was happening to the world. You know, I even found a Zoom therapist to, to talk about all this with because I really had to try to make sense with it. And slowly, 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 I found my sea legs. I looked for kindred spirits online. I found this lockdown skepticism uh, Reddit group, and I eventually became a moderator in the group. And I, I sometimes joke that I'm the oldest moderator on Reddit because I'm 66 now, and I was 63 when it all started. So I'm not exactly in the demographic that you would think would be so opposed to all this, right? An older woman, you know, supposed to be more cautious, more compliant. Right. But no, none of, none of this made sense or seemed right uh, to me just from a point of view of, of I mean, from the deeper perspective of how do we manage a pandemic? It all seemed very fear-based, very extreme and um, very uh, based on groupthink as well. So that's, yeah, that's, I mean, I, I was on board with the lockdowns early on and it's because I just believed the two weeks Ah. to flatten the curve narrative and I just yeah. thought like you know and I you know I wrote articles being like you know stop whining everybody early ah. on right and I feel I feel bad about it but I mean I did I did figure out that I was wrong in a reasonably quick mm. amount of time and then had to, you know was like sorry I was wrong anyway this is all bad <laughs> that's great but like yeah I mean I didn't I didn't understand what was happening early on um and i'm interested in those who did because there are people and these are people that i i learned from and and once i had conversations with and interviewed people who were seeing the lockdowns in a very different way and were really concerned about what was going on i caught on pretty quick um so i'm grateful to those people but i'm interested in why some people right away knew that the response to COVID was wrong, dangerous, harmful, et cetera. And why, you know, a lot of us didn't realize um, right away. Like, what is it that you, what is it that's about, you know, is there something about you that led you to have that reaction? I think so. And it's, it's not anything having to do with, you know, conspiracy. I was never really oriented that way. And I'm still not. I'm not inclined to believe in pandemic or anything of that nature. You know, I, I don't believe that the whole thing was orchestrated. I mean, there were certainly some malfeasance that occurred along the way, but I, I, I just don't believe that there was this cabal of, you know, mustachioed people orchestrating the whole thing. Never did. Um, it just seemed like a very shallow way to, to manage a pandemic that it was only focused on one aspect, which was controlling the virus. You know, from the beginning, I said, well, why are, why are we all saying follow the science? Where are the economists? Where are the mental health experts? Where are the philosophers? Where are the historians? You know, that this whole thing of just being focused on the virus, that's not what managing a pandemic is. It's, it's how to get the human family through a crisis while preserving not just life, not just metabolic life, what I call, but preserving what makes life worth living preserving human connection. And I just saw how everyone was willing to just completely throw that aside. And it was just this very 
it didn't really seem human. It seemed anti-human, all this stay home, save lives, stay home. You know, I tried to convince myself. I even put a stay home, save lives banner under my Facebook page for a few hours, but it felt so wrong. Like I just took it down after a few hours. Um, so that was my main objection, was that this is not just a scientific issue. And that's mm -hmm. why in my book I feature not just scientists, but I fe feature musicians and novelists and, you know, a comedian and a priest, because all these people have very important things to say about a pandemic too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was really anti-human and it seemed like an approach that it's almost like everybody forgot what human beings are and how human beings work and just how the world works and life and death works. Exactly. 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 And there was also, I mean, what, this is a controversial subject, but there was this, I saw the Overton window shift. It was like, everyone was saying, you know, a 95 year old like dying is with three comorbidities is as much of a tragedy as a five-year-old dying. And, mm. you know, people didn't used to talk that way. And that seemed really strange to me. It was it was as though like, people were not acknowledging the life cycle. It's not that we want people to die, but to me, there's a big difference, a profound difference between a 95-year-old who's very frail and not long for the world coming to the end of their life and a five-year-old being cut short. And before COVID, everyone knew this and everyone talked about it. And somehow it became taboo to talk about. And... I found that very unsettling because I'm very much a children first kind of person. I believe, I mean, I'm 66. I hope to live another 40 years. I'm in very good health, but if it's between me and a younger person, I will, I'll put the younger person first just cause I've had, you know, I've had more years of fun. So um, again, this is not to say that I devalue old people or I devalue myself. It's just, I felt that the young generation was just summarily discarded you know, it was all about saving grandma, but even, even grandma didn't want to be saved in this way. So many grandmas, you know, said that, you know, when they get to a certain stage of their life, they want to be with loved ones. They don't of care course. if they live two more months in a, you know, in a home isolated from everyone. So as you were saying, it just betrayed this complete lack of understanding of what life is about. And one of the philosophers that I feature in the book, Giorgio Agamben, who really came out during COVID speaking against this stuff, you know, he talks about bare life versus meaningful life and there was this weird emphasis on bear life which i think just rubbed some of us the wrong way and and yet we couldn't talk about it yeah like this idea that living is literally just about staying alive like right. then what right just you know plug you in and you could just you know they could you could just live unconsciously for right. eternity Maybe, as, right? as long but as the, as long as the metabolism you know is continuing yeah. and, and we see that actually a lot in modern medicine you know i've read some books about um, modern medicine and about what the authors call our death phobic society which i find interesting you know that we are we've just become attached to this paradigm of keeping people alive as long as possible even if they you know can't move or you know can't uh, think or express themselves. It's just this idea of keeping the body alive. And, and again, to me, that's very strange. It's just we've we've um, stepped away from an understanding of, of what I keep calling the life cycle. Well, and it's not what, you know, the things that give life meaning um, are things that we're all banned 
during COVID, during the COVID lockdowns, right? I mean, the important things in life, the, the things that are meaningful to human beings are, you know, relationships, family, connections, traditions, celebration, you know, mourning, um, but exactly. even, you know, communication like that, the communication thing is is one of the things that continues to bother me about specifically the mask mandates. Mm. Because I did, I, I right away, you know, kind of refused to put a mask on unless I was absolutely forced, you know, like yeah. if I was at the doctor's clinic or on a plane or, you know, something like that. But I wasn't voluntarily wearing a mask around. I had like an immediate aversion to it, partly at first because I just thought it looked stupid. And I was like, this is embarrassing. Why is everyone not embarrassed to be walking around in these stupid masks? And then beyond that, because I couldn't I couldn't breathe properly. It was hot. It was uncomfortable. And I couldn't communicate. I couldn't communicate. You, I couldn't send like facial signals to other people. You can't smile at people. I can't hear what people are saying. They can't understand what I'm saying. And it was really strange to me how many people didn't seem to care about that at all and seemed, in fact, really enthusiastic about putting these masks on. Yeah, I had the same feeling, you know. And again, I felt like I was taking crazy pills. I thought, why are most people not... Why, why don't they sense this, what I'm sensing, you know? And, and this forced me to to go find my tribe, you know, and I had to look far and wide, but I found them. They're all over the place, all over the world. And um, I also um, formed a group in Toronto. Um, you know, again, I was the matriarch and we called ourselves QLIT, Questioning Lockdowns in Toronto. And this was really out of a need because I the people in my life were not, you know, didn't didn't feel what I was feeling, uh, including my husband. I mean, he's he's more conservative in that way. And he was like, well, if the government thinks this is what we should do, well, maybe we should do it. And uh, he was very tolerant. He never shamed me, but he didn't really um, resonate with what I was going through. So I literally, you know, put together from starting from online sources, this group in Toronto, questioning lockdowns in Toronto, and we started to meet up. And we had um, we had a WhatsApp chat that never stopped. And we literally had from 500 to 1,000 messages per day. Like, that's how much we had the need to communicate with kindred spirits. Um, and, and it's still going. It's much, much less active now, of course. But, and, and I also got in touch with big people gradually. Being a moderator of this lockdown skepticism subreddit, I got in touch with um, big people in the skepticism movement like Jay Bhattacharya and uh, Vinay Prasad, uh, Martin Kaldorf, Matthias Desmet. And I got to speak with them personally in Zoom calls. And that's when sort of the idea of the book started to form. Like, you know, what if I collect all this wisdom in one place? Um, you know, and again, it wasn't just, it's not really a science book. It's a social philosophy book. That's how Amazon categorizes it. And, um, you know, and that, that's how the idea was, was born. And then when I pitched the idea to the Brownstone Institute, which is one of the um, outlets that I write essays for, uh, they went for it. And then the book, um, you know, that's how it came into being. Lion's so, Night is 2020. Yeah. So yeah. It's, uh, it can, you know, can be obtained on Amazon and Lulu. And uh, there's an audiobook version now. Uh, my right. publisher put one out. And, um, 
uh, oh, well, Spanish speakers. There's there's a Spanish uh, company approached me and put out a Spanish version. So that was kind of cool. excellent. Um, so, I mean, what do you think? I, I think in the chapter that you wrote about, um, you were featuring Dr. Z-Dog. Oh, yes. And he talked about a, sort of a, a personality that would go along that went along with the mandates and the lockdowns and the, the government narratives and a personality that would be inherently kind of averse to that, who would push back, who would be sort of rebellious. I mean, what do you, I want to talk more about the people who went along because those people all kind of baffle me still, you know, I understand the desire for safety and control, mm -hmm. but you know, at a certain point, things really weren't making sense. And yet a lot of people were going along, were supporting the mandates and, and, you know, bashing people over the head with their, their little slogans. And I was just like, aren't you tired of this? You know, yeah, don't know. you I know. hate I know. this? Aren't you worried about your kids who are out of school and not able to develop properly and aren't you seeing that, you know, this doesn't really make sense and that we know that the vaccines aren't stopping the spread. So these narratives are no longer right. They just, don't fit. Yeah. It doesn't. Yeah. yeah, it just doesn't make sense. So what what of those people? Um, well, he uh, Z-Dog, uh, Zubin Domania, he's, he's like a big um, medical influencer on, on uh, medical social media. He was an early influencer. I ran into his uh, one of his YouTube videos called, um, I think, Masks and the Moral Matrix back in May 2020. And um, he talked about moral foundations theory, which I subsequently read a lot about. And, and I, I completely agree with it. He, he talked about how we all have different moral, a different moral palette. And or that's the theory. It's uh, Jonathan Haidt who co-wrote um, The Coddling of the American Mind, a, a well-known book, that's his theory, how we all have a moral palette and we have different moral levers. You know, some people are more sensitive to um, caring or being perceived as caring. Some people are more um, sensitive to authority. They believe in following authority. Some people are more sensitive to freedom. That's just a very important moral value. And these values are actually not that they're not logically thought out. They're things that we had within us since a very young age for, you know, whatever reason. They're deep within us. And we may just justify them logically after the fact, but they're really quite instinctive. And so depending on your moral palette, you're going to fall on one or on the other side of the COVID divide. You know, and I discovered, again, I, I really didn't know this before. I discovered that I actually have a very strong sensitivity to freedom that it's an important value. Mm -hmm. I, I really assumed that everyone else was like me before. Like I completely naively at the age of, you know, 60 plus, I did not think I was unusual in, in this regard. And that's why it was so shocking to find out that I was. But that was one of the things that I learned that, you know, my freedom taste bud is very sensitive. And other people whose caring taste bud is sensitive, which, which also includes the need to be perceived as caring. You mm -hmm. know, when the narrative conflated support for lockdowns and, and masks and mandates and all that with the caring choice, um, certain people 
perhaps for good intentions in some cases, you know, they had a strong, caring um, taste bud and they just felt that they had no choice. Like this was sort of the only menu available to them. Uh, so, you know, one of the things that I try to avoid to do in my book is I don't really demonize the other side. Um, I try not to be wishy-washy either. I, I tell it like it is, but I also, I don't believe that everyone on the other side had bad intentions. I think they were blinded by fear and by groupthink. And in some cases they had good intentions. You know, as I said, of course there's some bad actors, but I, I guess I don't, contrary to some people that I know and like very well, who believe the whole other side is evil. I, I just, uh, you know, my mind won't really go there. I mean, I think that's the right approach. I uh, have trouble being as generous. <laughs> <laughs> I know that I know that your approach is the right approach, but I mean, like I wrote a piece called why we shouldn't forgive and forget mm. the, the COVID authoritarians. But I mean, it's not necessarily that I think that these people are evil, although so much of the rhetoric coming from these people was really, really hateful and really dangerous. It's that I don't feel like I can trust these people anymore because these are the kinds of people who will throw me in the gulag given mm. the chance. And uh, I don't want to, you know, I, I can't trust that they won't do it again. You know, they're obviously the kind of people who are not learning from history or looking critically at what's going on around them. I shouldn't say obviously, yeah. that seems obvious to me, maybe not to others. Well, you know, I think I think that maybe one of the differences, I don't know, I don't know if you got vaccinated or not. I did, and I did it without much thought. You know, I'm, I'm kind of, I know it sounds strange to say, I'm, I'm a, a bit of a risk taker. Like, I don't worry about my health. I worry about lots of other things, but I don't worry about my health. I didn't worry about COVID, and I didn't worry about the vaccines. I was like, mm. okay, sure, I'll get some shots. I came to be very much opposed to the vaccines, uh, mandates mm -hmm. over time. And I also came to see that the vaccines were, you know, had been overpromised and underdelivered. But I took the vaccines myself. So I think I didn't experience what some of the people who did not take the vax experienced in terms of, you know, vitriol and um, demonization. So perhaps it was easier for me in that sense. Mm -hmm. I think one thing that I have learned about all of this is that there are people who are afraid of freedom. So true. And, you know, I, I think, I think like you, I'm a, I'm a risk taker. Um, freedom is something that is, you know, one of the, if not the most important things to me, which I, I like you, you know, I really, learned that throughout the COVID thing and also in general through experiences with my my free speech, for example, being suppressed. Mm, um, yes, I yes. learned like the importance of right and the importance of things like free speech and freedom of expression and the importance now of like the right to protest and freedom of movement and things like that. Um, I... Yeah, but I think, I mean, it, it's tough to live on earth with people who are so very different from you, yeah. <laughs> especially when the policies and laws are having a really negative impact. No, it's life. true. I mean, I told you, like at the beginning, I was so despairing I, that I, th I sought a, a Zoom therapist 
to, yeah. to hash all this out. And I discuss it in the book as well. Like we, we talked philosophy more than psychology. We talked like trolley problem, deontology versus, you know, consequentialism. And, you know, because I, I could not understand again, this, this weird focus on just bare life um, and mm-hmm. divorced from why are we here? What makes life meaningful? And, you know, I could see if it had gone on for two weeks, but as you say, it did not. And and at certain points, certainly here in Canada and Ontario, it just seemed like there was no end, no exit ramp, and no one minded. And I thought, what's this all about? You know, what are we doing this for? This this is not this is not how you manage a pandemic. And in fact, pre-COVID, it wasn't. You know, all the um, pandemic guidance documents, which I read and reference, talked about how you have to try to maintain normalcy you know, and, and maintain human connection as much as possible. And all that was just tossed aside. So that's why I do see it as a kind of mass psychosis, you know, what um, Matthias Desmond calls mass, mass formation. There have been so many instances of that in history, you know, with uh, the Salem witch trials and the, you know, more recently the um, um, satanic abuse mm-hmm. uh, period, repressed memories and things like that. You know, I'm sure in some cases they were true, but these things build up a momentum and now that we have social media, um, groupthink just spreads like wildfire. And so I think this was the first um, global instance where we saw how this rapid spread, not of a virus, but you know, of groupthink could affect the whole world and basically make everyone go mad. Mm-hmm. And you know, you wrote about the that whole pot banging exercise that we oh, yeah. went through, the <laughs> the banging and the clapping for the nurses. And at, what time did that happen every night at like six it's or Thursday seven evening in, in Toronto? Yeah. Okay, I mean, I again, that was something I refused to participate in. Um, I, <laughs> but I didn't really think about. I didn't really understand why I refused to participate until I was reading your book and was like, okay, this inherently, like, I'm not going to go along the aversion to group think, the aversion to doing things that don't really make sense to me. And also, again, similarly to the mask thing, I sort of, it gave me like a cringy feeling of embarrassment. Exactly. (laughs) But what were, what was your opposition to the pot banging because it sounds like a nice thing but then you no, know, I know people like us who are like no I'm not doing this exactly and in fact I, I, I talk about that in, in the chapter on Laura Doddsworth she's a British journalist and she wrote one of the first um, books like critical books about the pandemic called A State of Fear and she mentions the exact same thing that she said okay at this point the reader is going to stop liking me maybe because I'm going to confess that I just never could get into the pot banging because it happened in the UK as well. And for similar reasons, it just, it, there's something cringy about it. And I think it's because it, you're basically outsourcing your thinking when you do that. It's like, okay, mm-hmm. I'm going to become just this cog in the wheel. And as I say, people who bang pots together, don't question policies together. You know, you, you just become swept <coughs> in the tide. And I think there's some of us who are just inherently, just something in us resists being swept in a tide like that. Um, I, I have discovered over the years that it's something in me. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something very uncomfortable um, about being just swept up in a group movement and, and losing your distance and, and you know perspective and capacity to critically think. 
Yeah, I yeah. When I think about it, I think I've I've always been like that. I've never been a, a follower, follow the group, go along, join the mob person. Thank God, because mobs are really dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's, it's difficult. It's when I mean it's not that difficult when everything's going well in life and there's no particular political upheaval, but when something like this happens, that's when you realize, wow. You know, that I think everyone I really believe COVID revealed to people who they were. Mm -hmm. for better or worse mm -hmm. it certainly did to me and it was again a shock to think at my age that I still had so much to learn about myself um you know and I know that you're um you know you've you've talked and written a lot about um having a critical perspective on gender ideology and um I have seen you know a great overlap the people that I know who are who have been critical of the COVID policies almost to a person mm -hmm. uh, are also critical of gender ideology. And I find that very interesting, you know, and I have some ideas about why there might be this overlap, but uh, it's, it's really striking. And again, these, these are good people. They, they are not, they don't want to do harm to any people who call themselves trans. They, they are respectful. They are good people, but they, they question the ideology and where it's all going. Yeah. And I think, I mean, it makes me think actually that there's sort of two different streams of opposition to the gender identity ideology thing, because there are, like you said, a lot of people, you know, the people that I was interviewing and learning from and reading who were opposed to the lockdowns and to the mandates and calling this out as authoritarian and irrational um and even you know harmful which we've learned that you know these lockdowns did throughout the world those people are all people i think i'm you know maybe i'm forgetting some people here and there but I at least mostly were opposed to gender identity ideology you know um questioning of whether or not you know this idea of like giving puberty blockers to kids was actually in their best interest. But then there was also a whole big group of feminists that I was connected to. You know, I come from primarily, you know, a feminist and leftist background. So for the past 10 years or so, my writing and my work has, the focus has been in, I guess, a socialist analysis, a radical feminist analysis. And probably the most of my supporters up until maybe four or five years ago were, were feminist. And when I started speaking out against the COVID narrative and the lockdown and the response and the mandates and advocating, you know, free speech and opposing the censorship that was happening around those who were speaking out against the COVID narratives, I was really seriously attacked by a lot of those same feminists who were opposed to gender identity ideology mm. and who were mm. advocating for their own free speech around gender identity mm. ideology. And, you know, I lost a lot of supporters. I lost a lot of subscribers. I lost a lot of donors when I, you know, by supporting the trucker convoy. Um, that must and, have been a big disappointment, you know, because you'd, you'd yeah. expect that people who are committed to one to free speech in one area would support it in another area. 
You would, but it wasn't the case with the. This yeah, do you have any idea why? I mean, the only thing that occurs to me is this: this narrative supporting the COVID narrative became so conflated with the left that it mm -hmm. almost seemed like people just felt hamstrung. If you're, you know, if you consider consider yourself on the progressive left, you simply cannot oppose it. Yeah, and that is, as it turns out, a big problem with a lot of these kinds of feminists is that they're very, very attached to and dedicated to the left and to their identities as leftists and their um, their their efforts to not be conflated with the right wing, with mm. alt-right, with right. conservatives, with these people who they consider to be political enemies who yeah. might not be political enemies or, or you know, let's just call them enemies who might not be enemies um, if they open their minds to the fact that just because a person might have some different, different views than you, some different political views, maybe some different religious views than you, that exactly. doesn't necessarily mean that they're a bad person or an enemy or that you can't work from them. So it's, yeah, it's interesting because they could recognize what they did recognize, which is really important, of course, is the impact of gender identity ideology on women and girls and women's rights, mm -hmm. which is massive. Like that's one of the very main things, right? Mm -hmm. But and the other, of course, is on children. I mean, that's the part uh -huh. that, that amazes me, you know, because I've, I've written about it and studied it. And I know some of the studies and this idea that you just rush children into this path and pretend that it's reversible and all that when it, you know, it clearly isn't Yuri. So this idea that you socially transition children when they might just, and chances are, will just grow out of it just fine on their own. Yeah. It seems so barbaric and you're setting them on a path of, of being a medical patient for life and of having compromised sexual function and fertility, which is not important to everyone, but to a lot of people. And um, it just seems so utterly barbaric and it's, when you really think about it, it amazes me that society is not only tolerant of it, but is so gung-ho about it now. I mean, obviously not everyone. I, you and I know a lot of people um, who are critical of it. And in fact, I'm reading a book right now, which I highly recommend. I don't know if you've read it, by Hel Helen Joyce. Mm -hmm. I have, yeah. Well, trans. I, yeah, I've interviewed her. Yeah, I've read yeah, it. It's a very good book. Yeah, great interview amazing. of her with um, Peter Bogosian. And uh, yeah, she's very bright. Yeah. And again, it's, it's this whole refusal to look at the cultural, um, social contagion aspect. And I think that's one thing in common with the COVID narrative is that the, to some of us, it seems clear that there was a lot of social contagion going on. But the people who were caught up in it just didn't see it. It was just, no, no, this is what the scientists are saying we should do, so we must do it. And I think it's the same thing with the um, you know gender ideology, mm -hmm. that they don't have that distance to see that... Again, I don't doubt that a lot of trans people are sincere. They sincerely believe that they are whatever, the opposite gender. You know, I, I, I really don't doubt their sincerity, but it, there's a whole cultural overlay and a whole social overlay. People don't exist in a vacuum. You know, people make choices and have thoughts in the context of a culture. And, and that's just being completely ignored by the progressive left um, that is saying, you know, this is this is innate. This is how people are. And this is what we must do. Right. You used a term earlier, uh, mass formation. Mass formation. That's Matthias Desmet's term. Yeah. yeah. Can you explain what that term means? Uh, well, Ma Matthias Desmet is a um, psychology professor and psychologist in Belgium, and um, he's sort of the uh, featured in, in, my, in the third chapter of my book. And his whole theory about what happened with COVID was 
what he called mass formation and what others later came to call mass formation psychosis, which, and he talks about the conditions that need to be present in society for this to take hold. People have to have a sense of alienation, not really feel connected to a community, um, what he calls atomization. So he talks about all the problems in our current fast paced, kind of alienated and alienating culture that made people very vulnerable to this really, it's, it's kind of a modern term for mob psychology. It's a form of mob psychology. And um, he makes an interesting differentiation between this, that kind of group um, psychology and true altruism, caring for others. Because he says when people are congealed in this kind of group, they're not really caring or looking out for the other. They're all just relating to this abstract collective you know, the authority, what people are telling them to do. They're not actually relating to each other. And I think it's an important distinction. You know, people think, oh, collectivism means you care about others. You know, you, you're operating as a group. But when you operate, when you're sort of an automatic pilot, which is what happened over the past three years, you're not actually looking out for your neighbor. Yeah, it's sort of, I mean, that, that's what you tell yourself, yeah, I think. And you mentioned earlier, which I think is an important and interesting thing to think about, too, which is that a lot of people really like to think about themselves as good people, which I think actually is one of the primary drivers around support for gender identity ideology mm. and legislation as well, mm. because people believe and are told and are telling themselves I support trans people. I support trans kids. Yeah, and I therefore, we have to go through with through all like we have to support all of these measures. Yeah. 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 I completely whole agree. Ideology. Yeah. I completely agree. It's, it's there's so, sort of, you know, the activists and, you know, in these movements are co-opting people's goodness and mm. sort of backing them into a corner saying, well, if you are a good person, you must support this. If you do not support this, you are a bad person. And most people don't have the fortitude to withstand being told by certain other people online or whatever that they're bad people and you know it's normal i mean i have pretty thin skin myself i had to get it thicken it up in a hurry but you know <laughs> historically i don't have thick skin but i mean the abuse that i received online for just you know politely really politely daring to voice some objections to this i mean i was called you know a, a sociopath a mouth-breathing trump tard Oh yeah, the, the village idiot you know i don't like trump at all you know and just nobody had ever called me these things for the first 63 years of my life and suddenly these strangers are online are calling me that like what's going on that, that also was a tip-off that people were not behaving rationally you could not you could not talk rationally about this and and i think that's that's why I think I was very driven to write about it. I didn't just write the book. I wrote about, I don't know, 32 essays that have been published in various outlets about various aspects of the response. Because I think it's so important to document this so it doesn't happen again in the same way um, yeah. the next time around. Because there's Yeah, I think so too. And I think, you know, that's part of my argument with regards to the not forgiving and forgetting. Because what I what I mean is not hold a necessarily hold a grudge forever i mean if you want to hold a grudge hold a grudge but like <laughs> it's not that you know it's not oh never never speak to your sister again or your friend who got it wrong but it's that don't forget because we have to remember for next time 
to do our best to make sure that something like this doesn't happen again. And you're right. That's why it's so important to, to document all of this as you you've done. Um, I mean, it's a, you know, it's all a drop of water. We all put our drops of water in, but we hope that it adds up to something. I do think it's important. I know we, we all sort of want to put it behind us now. And at the same time, I do think it's important that we keep talking about it and writing about it. Not all the time, of course, but we, we do need to, um, just to make sure it doesn't happen again in the same way. And, and hopefully, I'm a little bit hopeful. I don't know. I'm not entirely hopeful, but I, I'm hopeful that we've learned something and that the next time, you know, a pandemic, a similar kind of pandemic comes along, people won't lose their heads quite as much. I'd like to think that, you know, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, or that we'll think about the harms and the risks in a, in, in terms of more than just getting sick. Oh, um, totally, you know, totally. you write about that in your book, of course, also, yes. which is that, you know, like that we, we forgot about every single other harm and harmful impact. For example, you know, like leaving people to die alone, um, you, there was one story that I was just shocked by. I just, I'm just going to look at this from the book and read, read the paragraph, but it was that there was a kid who was isolated. This idea that like, you know, if any, if any kid was exposed to somebody that got COVID, not even like tested positive for COVID, yeah, no, that yes. they're exposed and you're supposed to isolate. They, parents were directed to isolate their kids alone away from the entire family not just from like school friends outside in their room by themselves for two weeks and then there was a kid who was locked in or like isolated in a shed and got hypothermia like and and i think a mother also took her kid exposed kid to the hospital in the trunk of a car i mean what (laughs) mother would do that you know but the saddest one that of all those stories that i read and and, because i have a, a chapter on children called children's children first there was a a young man, I think 19 years old, who turned out he had meningitis, you know, and he tried to get into the ER in the hospital to be seen and they refused to see him because he too had been exposed to COVID. He ended up dying, you know, and to me, that's just so unbelievably tragic that we let a young man die because of this twisted, you know, fear of a disease that, yes, of course, it posed a risk to some people, but it, it, the, the, the response and the reaction was so disproportionate. Um, Why do you think that it is that people are so resistant to changing their minds? I mean, once we had really concrete information that, you know, the vaccine mandates didn't make sense, for example, um, that kids weren't really at risk um, in terms of, you know, serious symptoms or death in terms of COVID. Um, why, why did people continue to cling so tightly to the previous narrative? That's a good question. I, you know, I don't know if there's a single answer. I mean, part of it may lie in, again, you know, their particular moral configuration. They just think, I'm a good people and good people had to do this. And this is what we had to do. And there's a bit of revisionism. I mean, there's a bit of um, people saying, well, we didn't know at the time. We didn't know. And um, this was the best we could do, or this was the lesser of evils. Yeah. Um, but but I think, you know, we actually knew quite early. I mean, this is, this is one of the reasons I wasn't that scared. There was a data from the um, Diamond Princess ship, um, cruise ship, 
fairly early on, like very early on by March, 2020. And I remember looking at that and thinking, you know, it's, these are all older people who are on this cruise ship and probably the, not all in that great shape. I mean, if I yeah. know anything about the kinds of people who go on cruises. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and yet they, they did quite well, you know, I mean, maybe 1% of them, like they all got the disease just and of the ones they almost all of them got it. Or I can't remember what proportion, but of the ones who got it, you know, maybe 1% died. So I thought this is not sort of the apocalypse. Mm. And, and again, as it became so apparent, the stratification of risk, you know, the people who were most at risk and the people who were least at risk, there was, you know, orders of magnitude difference. So it didn't seem fair to treat everyone as though they were at maximal risk. And again, I came back to the young people. Like my two kids were in university at the time. They're a year and a half apart, but they were both graduating the same year in 2020. And I was really preoccupied for them. Like they were living in on their own, each of them in apartments. My son was living in a basement apartment in Kensington Market with literally two inches above his head. Mm. Those apartments have no windows. I had a tiny window, but with no light. And, you know, I thought, you know, when young people are stuck on their own without socialization in these extremely dis depressing environments, that's really not healthy, you know? Yeah. And, and I was concerned. I mean, they got out of it, but I was, I was concerned um, because they had to, suddenly they had to give up all their social supports, all their extracurriculars, all their classes. And for people who live alone, it can be very isolated and isolating. And, and that is one thing that I also felt resentful about, you know, people who had nice family situations, they had their house and they had their, um, you know, people coming in to help out and, everything was stable, they had their job, no big deal, you know, lockdown. But for anyone who was in a precarious situation, it could completely pull the rug out from under you. Yeah. And um, so, you know, one thing I feel pretty confident about, people have accused me of being selfish for not supporting the lockdowns. <clears throat> I'm pretty confident it wasn't selfishness because my situation didn't change. You know, I was one of the middle-class laptop people, like my income didn't change, my home situation didn't change. But I think I really did feel empathy for my kids and, the, and, and a lot of people in their generation who were not in that situation. And whenever I heard of a young person like killing themselves because of the lockdowns, I, I have to say that just, that was a lot more painful for me to hear than, you know, perhaps someone at the end of their life in a, in a nursing home who uh, died of COVID. It's not that I wanted anyone to die, but somehow the people who died of the policies just seemed especially tragic to me. You know? mm -hmm. I, I just, yeah. And well, and I mean, so much of the, the narrative and the, the kind of uh, manipulation or bullying that was going on in terms of trying to force people to go along, to continue going along and along and along and along with the lockdowns was you know, protect grandma. Like, do you yeah. want grandma to die? Like, you're going to kill grandma if you don't stay home and if you don't get vaccinated and if you don't mask up. But I don't ever remember, even when it was happening, I don't remember hearing from grandma. You know what exactly. I mean? Like, I don't remember there being a whole mass of seniors demanding lockdowns. And what I do remember is feeling really awful for 
older people because older people are so easily more isolated than everyone else because they're less mobile. You know, they're, they are retired, so they're not going to work. So they're spending a lot more time at home. They can't get out and get around as easily as other people often. And you're at the end of your life. And to force someone to die alone is just so tragic and cruel. I, I completely agree. And, and uh, you know, I talk about that as well in the book, how some old people actually came forward and said, we don't want this. We just don't want this. There was a, a group of people of residents in a nursing home who rebelled and, you know, protested and had placards saying, you know, set us free and all that. So, <laughs> and, but again, they, they, they didn't, you know, all these policymakers didn't actually get down on the ground and talk to the old people. It was it was sort of the middle aged people or the boomers deciding what was best for the old people, you know. And I'm a boomer, but I, I didn't identify at all with what the boomers were doing at the time. Yeah. yeah, well, and people my age really went along. I mean, most people that I knew in Vancouver are kind of progressive people. Vancouver is a really progressive city. Canada is a really progressive in country a country in general. So. There were a few people who were opposed, but most of my friends in Vancouver went along and were angry at those who didn't want to go mm. along. Um, mm. And I mean, I, I know I lost a lot of friends because of my choices and because of my writing and, and speaking mm. out about this stuff. Some people, you know, reamed me out on social media and some people just stopped talking to me and still have not spoken to me again or you know it's not like there's been any reckoning where someone's come around and been like oh sorry I was wrong like I shouldn't have treated you or shouldn't have treated others like this or I, I you know I I screwed up have you have you heard for any from anyone who like was like oh oops sorry <laughs> well as I say like I, I don't again I don't know what you know your choices were around the vaccine but I the fact that I got vaccinated I think people I didn't experience as much vitriol um, for that. As far as my views about the whole COVID, the mandates and the masks and the, and the lockdowns, which was were very much anti, I wouldn't say I lost any friends, um, luckily enough, or even colleagues. I mean, I, I took the. I think I'm old enough that you kind of figure you're ready to take a chance. I don't have young children to feed, so I could take some chances. I actually told some of my clients about my views. Um, the ones that I've been working with for a long time. And some of them even bought my book, you know, and I haven't lost anyone so far. So I consider myself lucky in that regard. But again, I do, you know, perhaps if I had not getting vac gotten vaccinated, well, I know I wouldn't have been able to go to certain meetings with some clients. Um, but I know, you know, I, I supported the convoy too. And I think a lot of my friends were just baffled. They just, <coughs> like, it, they couldn't, it, it wasn't even something that they could compute, you know what I mean? Because they were so used to, you know, my friends, a lot of them are, most of them are also progressive, so to speak. And it just, how can, you know, how can someone like you support the convoy? You know, uh, they would say things like, I mean, your mother was a Holocaust survivor. How can you support this thing? You know, because they were equating it with Nazis. And... I remember I had a cousin at a New York gathering, a family gathering for my aunt's 100th birthday. This was last year. And again, I was telling all of them. By then, my book had just come out, and I was telling them. Um, no, it was the beginning of this year, sorry. And I was telling them about um, 
some of my thoughts around the pandemic policies and and then this cousin piped up well but surely you didn't support the convoy and i said matter of fact i did and he he, he wasn't even upset he just i think he just didn't even know what to say it was like you know this doesn't make sense so we changed the subject you know i think just people could not understand how a so-called I mean, progressive. I don't consider myself progressive anymore. I consider myself totally politically homeless, but mm -hmm. people couldn't understand how I could support the convoy. And for me, it was always something bigger than just the vax mandates. Oh, yeah. And, you know, Rupa Subramania, who you may have heard of. Uh, mm -hmm. I've interviewed her, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. She, um, I was also on her show, on her podcast, and she, um, she's featured in my book too. And she, talks about how she thinks it was a bigger moment than just about the vax mandates. It was just people oh, yeah. up in protest against what was happening to Canada and, and just the level of, of authoritarianism and coercion and craziness. And I, of course, I was going to support that. And then I also um, heard from my son about it. I actually interviewed my son for the book because he went to the convoy. Uh, my kids are, you know, fortunately, they were both pretty much aligned with my thinking from the start. And um, so my son and some of his buddies, they live in Montreal, they went to the convoy. And um, so he told me what it was like. You know, I asked him about, well, what about all these accusations of Nazi and Confederate and this and that and the other? So he told me, of course, you're going to always have a couple of crazies at any protest. But he gave me a sense of the overall mood. And what it was about. Of course, there was a lot of anti-Trudeau sentiment, but that's fine. <laughs> but what he really described was not what the mainstream newspapers were reporting. Um, right. So. Yeah. And I mean, and I, I supported the convoy right away and I thought they were heroes and I think they saved Canada and America yeah. too, actually. I mean, that's why the mandates ended. It is. I, I, it's, you know, that's why they, they forced the government to drop the mandates. Um, and for me, it was never really primarily about the vaccine mm. either. Um, I mean, I thought the mandates were wrong, but like you, it wasn't initially, it wasn't like I was scared or worried about getting the vaccine. I certainly had concerned concerns after a certain point. Um, but it was, it was about everything part of part of my anger and concerns were class related you know we knew very early on what a horrible impact the lockdowns were having on addicts for example you know the poor and the working class were the ones who were suffering they were losing their jobs they were losing their businesses um they had you know people who were struggling with like addiction and mental health issues didn't have access to the services that they normally had access to they didn't have access to other people to communities they're being isolated which of course is going to make mental health and addiction issues worse and you know nobody was coming around to see how they were doing um and there was a line in your book from um, Gupta who who called it an unpoetic response mm. um, and also talked about it as uh, an unbearable, futile aspect. So it yes. really reinforced, you know, we don't have this class system in Canada like they do in India, for example, and even in places like Mexico, right? Like class is very visible 
hmm. in Mexico. If you hmm. go to Mexico City and you go to the rich areas, people look very different, you know, hmm. like in I'm I'm generalizing, but in general, like the the elites, the the upper class, the people with money are light skinned and they look more European. Um, and the people who are poor are darker skinned and mm. there's still a lot of racism in Mexico around that difference. But, you know, really what it is is so much about class. Right. But in any case, you know, class, these, these class oppression is a lot more visible and class and discrimination and the differences between the rich and poor are a lot more visible in mm. places that aren't Canada, I would say. But what this did is it really reinforced what the elites have what the upper class has even what the middle class has versus what the working class and the poor are dealing with and the covid response made all of that exponentially worse and the middle and upper class who claim to be progressives who often claim to be leftists who claim to be the ones who are caring about oh well this is going to hurt the people of color the most this is going to hurt the poor most and it's like what you're doing is you're punishing and hurting the people that you claim to care about because you don't actually care about these people. You don't actually know any of these people. You have no idea what their lives are like because you're not working class and you don't spend time with working class or poor people because you're an elitist snob. Yeah, no, it's really true. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, the, the Zoom the Zoom therapist that I consulted during this, I, I think I saw him for about like a year or a year and a half or so. Um, in the 2020 and 21, he said something interesting about the progressive left. He said that the left used to be really concerned about cl the class struggle, you know, yeah. the working class and lifting them up. And he said where he thinks they really lost the plot is they abandoned that concern and replaced it with the struggle for identity. And, you know, that once that happened, all these intersectional identities, you know, and all these oppressed groups that's when they lost the plot you know and i that really made a lot of sense to me um and yeah it, it was so disturbing to see these pictures let's say of people dining in restaurants or going to a party unmasked and, and then all the servers were masked i mean that was just such a blatant illustration of the yeah plastic. like aoc getting primped and and taken care of by these masked you know, not literal servants, but it's sort of reminiscent of that for sure. You know, the, the political class, the media class, the elites. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if you know a guy called Mark Changizi. He's, he's one of the people that I figure that I feature in the book and he's, he's a cognitive scientist. He's written some books himself. Uh, also, you know, virulently opposed to this mask forever culture. And, you know, he talked in a video, he talks about that. He said, you know, they, I hope it's okay if I swear. He said they they wanted us to hide our fucking faces. Oh, I did read that chapter. I'm sorry. I just had forgotten his name. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. The, yeah. You know, when you really think about it again, this is how these people wanted humanity to progress going forward, just with hidden faces. You know, it's um it's all starting to seem like a dream, isn't it? You know, now is because this year things really have normalized quite a bit, I find. Um, I don't know what your experience is. But. Yeah, I mean, I think so. But I mean, I, of course, ran away to Mexico during the lockdowns because oh, did I you? wanted to live free. Yeah, I left. Oh, oh so that was in 2020. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, so I I'd, I'd had enough and I was really concerned about the direction Canada was heading. So I left 
for Mexico wow. and then I just didn't go back because things were indeed getting worse. So I just oh, stayed that's... and so I still live here now. So I, you know, I didn't, yeah, I mean, I just, re- I didn't want to participate and I was worried about getting trapped in Canada and I was worried mm. about my speech and my ability to work. I was honestly worried about getting like arrested or something. Right. Um, for, wow, that's great you know, that you actually moved. Well, uh-huh. you know what I did in 2020? I, I also, I had to get away, but I only got away for a week. You know, there was that summer in 2020 where there was a bit of a reprieve and Europe, the European Union was allowing certain countries, you know, the good countries that had below a certain level <laughs> of COVID mm. were allowing them to go in. So I took advantage of that um, period of time and I, I just went away for a week three days, three and a half days in Amsterdam and three and a half days in Stockholm. I really had to go see Sweden. I really wanted to see what it was like and just to get away. So I just went on my own and I hopped on a plane and and it was great. Amsterdam at that point was also quite freewheeling about the whole thing, much more relaxed. And there was a lot of tourists, of course, no Americans because America was a bad country. They weren't allowed to go to Europe at the time. And then going to Stockholm, that was magical. I also happened to hit the best, best weather. And you know, I, I almost forgot the pandemic. Yeah, it was just so sane and so relaxed. And, and again, this Stockholm's a beautiful city, especially in that resplendent weather. And um, you know, that was very special. Yeah, uh, just just that need to get away. And then when I came back, I had to quarantine for fourteen days, but it was worth it. It was worth it. Yeah, I mean, what what was in part great about being here, besides the fact that nobody was you know, we were not locked down. We were not masking up. There was no fanaticism around the vaccine. But I thought um, Mexico became more fanatic, didn't it? Or I mean, it really depended on where you were in Mexico. Ah, so mm-hmm. I think things may have been different in Mexico City, in right. Puerto Vallarta, you know, some other places. It really, But where I was and when I got here, we were not doing anything and everything was fine. And I just wanted to, you know tell all my friends in Vancouver and other places like, you know, you don't have to do this. Like Mm -hmm. this is not, you're not saving anyone's life. Like we have to go on with life. When I got here, uh, pretty much everyone that I knew had already had COVID. Mm. um, So people just were not worried about it for the most Mm. part. And, and a lot of people had done what I had done, which was to run away from what they saw as authoritarianism and, something really quite dangerous and scary. So a lot of people that I knew here and who are my friends here had left Canada and America for similar reasons. That's amazing. That's great. I think it's wonderful that you actually, you know, you didn't just go away for a little while. You actually pulled up your roots and and started a new life. Yeah. I just kind of abandoned everything and I'm really (laughs) glad that I did. And and then, you know, so I have been back to visit, you know, I went back to visit BC to Vancouver to the island uh, about a month or so ago. And yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, things have gone back to normal, which is great. But, you know, you still see a lot of people around masks, you know, like at the cafe. I, I'm still like, sorry, sorry. Like, oh, really? this is my trying to get through to them that I can't understand what they're talking about. Yeah, right. Because they are, because it's so, it's so frustrating. Like you order a coffee and they ask you a question and it's like this muffled, I'm like, I don't know what you're saying. Why are you still doing this? Um, But yeah, yeah. I mean, nonetheless, like uh, I just... 
it's weird that there's no there's no reckoning no for sure but you know one encouraging thing in that regard um i was recently in asia in singapore and seoul and um you know the 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 trope is oh all the asians wear masks it's part of their culture and they right you What's know, your problem? Why are you complaining about this? Because, all because they, they, and they, they all care because they care about their community. But, and I've got the pictures to prove it, um, you know, in, in those two places, in Singapore and Seoul, like the maskers were definitely a minority. And I'm talking even in, you know, in the subways and trains and indoor and malls and all that. I mean, yes, there were some, but they were absolutely the minority. So, you know, and I think that's that's very healthy, you know, people don't want to and shouldn't live in crisis mode forever. I mean, if somebody wants to be my guest, but I won't be having much to do with you. Yeah, um, you can't impose that on everyone else. I mean, no, if you want to no. be afraid and you want yeah. to stay home and you want to wear a mask, then okay. But imposing that on everyone else is the really crazy thing. Especially in perpetuity, you know. And again, there's there's always these justifications. Oh, you know, whatever, immunocompromised, this and that. Well, most immunocompromised people are over it too. You know, we people don't want to live... Um, you know, people want to live full lives. Um, and, and, and I talk about that as well in the book, this, this idea of pandemic fatigue. It's a well-documented scientific phenomenon that most pandemics end not when the science changes or, you know, or when the virus reaches a certain level. It ends when the people decide mm. that they will no longer live in pandemic mode. So they talk about the medical end and the social end of a pandemic, and the social end often comes first. Um, and that's fine. That's healthy, you know, and we're not meant to live in pandemic mode for the rest of our lives. And most of us are not willing. And so it's nice for me to see that after three years of craziness, just about everyone, except for, you know, a certain faction on Twitter, but just about everyone really, there, there's a healthy um, pull toward normalcy. Um, mm. So I, I consider that you know, it's nice to see after all that craziness. And that gives me a little bit of hope, you know. I mean, one of the things among the many things that we as a society seem to forget about is something that I don't think I had heard this term before, um, the hy hygiene hypothesis. Yes, yes, the hygiene hypothesis. Can you explain that? Um, it's a hypothesis that I think has a lot of evidence that if you don't expose um people to enough pathogens, if you hyper sanitize their environment, um, their immune system will not develop properly. Um, so they've done a lot of studies, for instance, of children born in, and raised in farms, children raised with a lot of animals. Animals are protective, apparently, because animals bring in a lot of dirt from outside. Children raised with dogs apparently have less um, you know, asthma and certain allergies than children raised without, children raised on farms and so forth. So, you know, it's still, there's still a lot of work being done on that. And I don't think it's definitively established, but there's a lot of evidence supporting this idea that, yes, if you sanitize environments too much, you are not doing the immune system a favor. Yeah. I mean, I think as I understand it and as I've understood this for some time now is that kids are supposed to be playing in the dirt and, you know, licking their hands and touching right. animals and yeah. yeah i mean i when i grew up i was outside playing in the dirt all the time and in sandboxes full of pee and we always had <laughs> dogs who i'm sure i was like 
you know, kissing all the time. I still kiss my dog and share water with my dog. Sorry if that goes. Oh, wow. oh I can't help it because I put my glass of water down and she she drinks out of it, or I put my coffee down and she drinks out of it. I put my wine down, she drinks out of it. So oh my I, god, my I don't always know. Neither afraid of that. That's the one thing he he's like, no, no, he would have an absolute. I mean, I'm not intentionally sharing yeah. with my dog. I'm just saying that it happens. Oh, wow. I'm not too worried about it, but I think I probably ended up with a robust immune system as a result of all of that. Well, but it's weird you... that people now think that there is this, like they need to be, you know, I mean, kids get sick, they get germy, they're grubby. Like this idea yeah. that you can protect kids from getting sick and that they shouldn't touch each other or breathe on each other, or put their hands in their mouths. Or, I mean, the kids are going to do all of that stuff anyway, but the well, that, approach that, during yes. COVID was particularly weird. It's like that, sanitize your child. Like, that's the not how kids are supposed to be. A two-year-old to wear a mask. What two-year-old is going to keep a mask on properly? It just, it's not going to happen. You know, it's not happening. It's it's just, it's, it's absurdity. It's, it's sort of, uh, it's OCD, basically. It's, it's um, institutionally um, rubber-stamped, endorsed OCD, collective yeah. OCD. It's crazy. Um, one thing I wanted to just talk about, if we have time, you, you mentioned um, this this idea of you know progressive and right wing, and people didn't want to uh, espouse certain beliefs or explore certain beliefs because they were tagged as right wing. Um, you know, one of my objectives in writing this book is I wanted to reach both sides. I wanted to write a book that people who felt like me could relate to, but also the other side could sort of pick up and go, oh, okay. I understand some of the issues. I may not agree with all of them, but I, I kind of see why some people objected to all this. Um, but it's been so much more challenging to reach the left side than the right side. You know, mm -hmm. most of the interest that I've had from podcasters has been from, you know, so-called right-wing or alternative um, podcasters, but the ones who are firmly on the left you know, I've had a few nibbles, but it's just, it's a lot harder. And that's, yeah. um, you know, I find that regrettable. I mean, I'm still, still working on it, but that's, that is one of my goals is for, um, so I, you know, I tell people who are on our side, our side, you know, give the book to, give the book to some of your progressive friends, um, you know, just maybe to get them thinking in a little bit, because that, that is definitely one of my aims. It's not just to preach to the choir. I think that's the danger sometimes with books like these mm. is you end up preaching to the choir when mm -hmm. really I want to talk to both sides. Yeah. And I mean, it's really hard. And I think that's, that's important. You must and run into that too. Said that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard because people don't want to listen and they don't want to have the conversation and they find ways to avoid having the conversation. And in the case of COVID, um, people, have, you know, I and I'm sure you and, and you know, everyone else who, who opposed the mandates in various ways or who supported the convoy or simply advocated for more rational approaches is labeled a conspiracy theorist or an anti-vaxxer. And those are really powerful labels in our culture. And I mean, I, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I've never been an anti-vaxxer. I wasn't even anti-this-vax, <laughs> but like, you know, early on, um, yeah. Yeah. I, now I sort of, you know, I don't, I think I can actually say what I think on YouTube, but, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, like I, how do we reach 
those people? Do you have any ideas or experiences? Well, as I'm telling you, I'm still working on and it. And by those people, I mean yeah. the people who are who the people are on the other side. calling, did... labeling us anti-vaxxers, conspiracy theorists, and, you know, stupid, fascists. Exactly. Uh, selfish. I've, I've, I don't know. I don't have the answer yet. I mean, I've been able to reach these people individually. As I told you, some of my clients, my friends, and people who have different views have bought the book and have been fine with it. Um but just to sort of reach the, um, you know, the large mainstream news outlets that are progressive, like the Toronto Star, you know, they wouldn't touch a book like this, review mm. it. So that's mm. where I think the challenge lies, is, again, there's such polarization that um, certain news outlets, again, they don't want to be, you know, accused of being right wing, uh, whatever that means anymore. So I think that's where the challenge lies. And I don't, I don't have the answers, you know, I'm still working on it. I, I don't know if you do, but it's, it's not easy. No, it's not easy. Um, but one, one thing that's been interesting also for me is because of all these, the podcasters who have shown interest in interviewing me, they've been so diverse, although almost, you know, almost none of them progressive. I've had to open my mind also and just talk to different people. Like I've talked to some very religious people. Yeah. There's some really religious people who are interested in uh, having me on their shows. And I'm I'm not a religious person, but I kind of related to some of the religious people's objections to the COVID policies, you know, like the religious Jews um, in Israel and in New York, how they just refused to comply, or the Amish was another group. I, I really came to understand their worldview so it's been interesting for me to open up my mind too. I'm still not religious, but I understand the religious perspective in a different way because I, I thought they had a, a more, somehow a deeper and more holistic response to the pandemic. Than yeah. I mean, the religious people were some of the only ones to push back in Canada early on because yeah. there was, you know, people who refused to stop going to church or didn't want to shut down church or refuse to stop religious gatherings, which mm -hmm. I thought was great. Yeah. 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 I did too. And I, I came to understand it. It's like they look at the world in a different way. Yeah. And for them, you know, communion is not something non-essential. Right. You know, they, they don't, I mean, who decided that spiritual communion is non-essential, but wandering around the aisles of Walmart is essential. You know, who decided that? <laughs> And some people just said, no, we, we're not going along with this. And I really admire that. So it, it sort of opened my mind a little bit more to the religious perspective. Um, so I've found that interesting. You know, yeah. I've, I've talked to all kinds of interesting people. That, that's a silver lining, as perhaps you've found, too. I mean, you lose some people, but then you gain a lot of really interesting people, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, my my cancellation, I mean, I've been canceled a 100 times now, but, you know, like my cancellation <laughs> has been great in so many ways because it exposed me to all sorts of different people. I mean, I'm lucky to have a podcast. I mean, it's a real gift because I get to speak to and learn from so many different people. I've changed my mind about so many things just from talking mm -hmm. to people who had different views and different expertise than I did. And um, And yeah, you know, I'm not there's almost nobody that I, I don't want to talk to so long as they're engaging in good faith. And mm -hmm. I don't think they're crazy or some kind of psycho or phony or whatever, but you know, like it's, I, I, my mind is so much more open than it once was, you know, I once was one of those leftists who sort of wrote off 
the right, um, mm. the so-called right, whoever was labeled mm. as right. I don't think that those categories have a lot of meaning anymore. No. Um, but I mean, I guess I found that the one of the easiest ways or the most successful or productive ways in getting through to people is really just one-on-one, you know, yeah. Yeah, it's just by having cool. conversations with people and maybe asking questions and they humanize you. It's very easy to dehumanize people online, as I'm sure you know and oh have God. experienced. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's uh, it's been quite quite a ride. Yeah, um, but, but I agree. It's one conversation at a time. Ultimately, that's what we're stuck with. You know? Yeah, but and also hopefully, yeah, sharing your book and maybe people will open their minds or or learn something or change their view. So speaking of, how can people get your book? Blindsight is 2020. Yeah. Yeah. So again, um, well, it's it was published in the states by a an American nonprofit publisher. So you won't find um, too many copies, you know, in the bookstores. Um, in Canada, uh, you can get it on all the Amazon outlets. Uh, people, Amazon haters, can get it on Lulu, mm-hmm. um, and uh, or if anyone just wants to look up my website, GabrielleBauer.com, there's instructions there for how to get. It. But I would say Amazon is, is by far the easiest. And um, as I mentioned earlier, there's an audiobook version now out for people who like to listen to books. Um, I'm not the narrator. The narrator was, was selected by my publisher. And um, yeah, and there's, well, there's an e-reader book and a print uh, version available. So Excellent. Well, I'm so glad that we were able to talk today. Um, I really appreciate your work. I thought the book was great and I wish you all the best and I hope that lots of people read it. Well, thank you. And I will keep following your work, um, which I much admire. So thank you so much. Mutual fan club. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Okay. Have a great night. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. I'm Megan Murphy, host of The Same Drugs. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Megan Murphy. This allows you access to special content, early access to episodes, and periodic Patreon-only live streams. Plus, you can DM me to your heart's content and I will reply. You can also follow and support my work on Substack at www.meganmurphy.ca where paid subscribers get access to special content, get commenting privileges, and more. And subscribing on Substack is a great way to sustain my work. I super appreciate that. You can also, if you like, support this podcast directly on Spotify by clicking the support button on the Same Drugs podcast page. I produce and host this podcast all by myself and rely entirely on individual donors to sustain my work. This is all me and you, the listener. You can donate directly to support this podcast via PayPal at paypal.me slash the same drugs. Every little bit counts and ensures I can stay independent. Thank you so much for supporting Conversations Outside the Algorithm. <laughs>